This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to uh, discuss uh, Iranian-U.S. relations, in particular, trying to understand uh, the sources and uh, nature of Iranian uh, policymaking and the history of Iranian society as it relates to the United States. And we're trying to get a better historical understanding of why the United States and Iran, uh, who were once allies, uh, seem to be so close to war repeatedly. Uh, in our current moment. Uh, We have with us uh, an individual who's doing some of the most exciting new research on uh, the history of the Middle East and Iranian policymaking in particular. Uh, This is uh, Carl Forsberg. Uh, Carl is a uh, PhD candidate here at the University of Texas. Uh, He has spent an extensive amount of time doing research in the Middle East, and he has also spent time uh, in Afghanistan and elsewhere both as a scholar and as a policy advisor. Uh, Carl, welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, We are, too. Uh, Before we turn to uh, our discussion with Carl, uh, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? So Wrong. So Wrong. Okay, you're not talking about me, but but about uh, the subject, right? Okay, let's, let's hear your poem. When Cyrus the Great freed the Jews from Babylon, did he know how to mine international oil tankers? Did he know how to get millions of dollars taken away by American bankers? When Persia was the only place where there was freedom carrying on, where were the Saudis, the Qataris, the boom-and-bust riches? Where was the black gold, the thousand-foot ditches? When the world was vast and new and Persia built the bridges, when Xerxes lost Thermopylae, when Xerxes lost to Spartan smidges, when all was new in Persia through, could they see the makings of drones shot down? Were the makers of a thousand masterpieces, the seers of a thousand sites, the writers of a thousand nights, were they plotting the terrorist bombings, the nuclear atomic frights? Did they see our fearful faces? Did they await the American frown? Did they see an American future in the mountains, the deserts, and the fertile ground? And for the desert oases of billionaire oligopoly is our future bound? Are we to seek stability in the raging deserts of nomadic eternity, in the instant rise of glass toward towers that soar to the sky, in the decaying of carcasses of the dinosaurs that died? Are we doomed to ignore the diversity of our enemies for the comfort of outrageous modernity, doomed to wander fully armed between the oil rigs and the sand dune ridges, to fight for ages for the sand stretches between the pipelines that cross desertion? And how can we sit in our ignorant hatred, stand in the muck of our fears inflated? How can we be so wrong about Iran when I can taste the past and the future in the Persian food of an Iranian Los Angeles restaurant, when I can taste the sweet, the spice of a people so misunderstood? I like, Zachary, how you go from uh, Cyrus and uh, the history of Iran to uh, contemporary cuisine. Uh, I like those connections. What, What is your poem about? My poem is really about how um, how much of Iran and Iran's history and diverse culture we just ignore, and we think of Iran in such simple terms, and we think of it all as um, something that is malicious and out to get us, but what, but we don't understand how diverse and how varied 
and also how how vast Iran is and how different it is from countries like Saudi Arabia, which are simply organized around oil. Sure, sure. Well, that's the perfect place to turn to our expert, Carl Forsberg. Uh, Carl, how should we understand as Americans uh, the roots of Iranian uh, foreign policy making and Iran's view of its larger region? Right. Well, that was a great poem, Zachary. I really enjoyed that. I look forward to reading it again. Yeah, that's a great question, Jeremy. What are really the roots of Iranian foreign policy? Well, obviously, before 1979, Iran was was a strong ally of the United States, and that changed very abruptly during and after the Iranian Revolution. Iranian foreign policy today, like the foreign policy of any country, has multiple traditions. Right. I'll talk about two. Uh, The dominant would be the traditional call of Khomeinism, the legacy of Ayatollah Khomeini. But there's also a more pragmatical, more pragmatic tradition Hmm. in contemporary Iranian foreign policy making. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini really is the founding father of the Islamic Republic of Iran and had a deep impact on the Islamic Republic's foreign policy. There's several founding principles to his foreign policy vision. One was a genuine non-alignment. There were plenty of leaders in the Cold War who called themselves non-aligned, but Khomeini took that, I think, more seriously, took that farther than most did. This is a leader who actually refused the help of both the Soviets and the United States at various points in fighting an existential war for survival with Iraq during the 1980s. And I think there are very few Cold War leaders who went that far in their commitments to non-alignment. Another premise of uh, Khomeini's foreign policy was the principle of warding off, essentially, American hostility. Khomeini saw America as the successor to the imperial traditions of Russia, of the Soviet Union, and of the English as an imperialist force that sought not just to weaken Iran and make it economically dependent, but also that posed a threat to Iran's culture to Iran's authenticity, to its very identity. Uh, In the terminology of Khomeini and the revolution, the United States was the great Satan, the Shatan of the Zorg, supported, of course, by the little Satan of Israel. And so built into that tradition, there is this hostility, this sense that there is a conflict with the United States. A corollary of that is an attempt to break a perceived American hegemony in the Middle East, an attempt to essentially break the American alliance system in the Middle East on the premise that America uses its regimes in the region to weaken Iran. And the final uh, premise also related to this of Khomeinism as a foreign policy tradition is an attempt to export the Islamic Revolution. Right. If Iran can export the revolution, it will break America's hold in other Middle Eastern countries. So just focusing, now, on, there, on, just focusing for a second, Carl, on Khomeinism, um, to what extent was Islam or is Islam a motivating factor for, for these three elements that, that you've uh, covered so well, particularly the anti-Americanism? Right. Oh, it's certainly an integral element of Khomeini's foreign policy. Khomeini was a, an Islamic cleric. His political vision had a number of influences, including actually he was a, a devotee of Plato, and his hmm. conception of the Iranian constitution came from, in some ways, from Plato's conception of the of the guardians and the republic. Wow! But as a, as an Iranian cleric, uh, he really was um, his foreign policy thinking was connected to a belief that Shiism, the Shia religion, was integral to Iran's identity, hmm. and that had to be protected if Iran was going to maintain 
its authenticity if it was going to resist the forces of foreign imperialism. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that that is really shot through his vision of Iranian foreign policy. It's shot through his vision of Iran's influence in the region, uh, because he did see Islam as a mechanism by which Iran could turn other Muslim countries in the Middle East away from the United States and instead reorient them towards a new regional order that had Iran at its center. I see. I see. So what about the pragmatic strain, the, the other strain? Right. So the Iranian constitution is a, is a very interesting, fascinating thing from the standpoint of, uh, of a podcast on democracy, because it's sort of partially democratic and partially not. Hmm. So in addition to the supreme leader, Iran has elected presidents. And since, 19, since the early 1990s, three of Iran's four presidents, uh, Rafsanjani to some extent, and more so Mohammad Khatami and Hassan Rouhani, have in many ways tried to develop a foreign policy alternative to that of Khomeinism, which is sort of embodied by the Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, since 1989, and by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, Iran's presidents, their elected leaders, and their foreign policy is focused much more on uh, Iran's economic growth, on building good relations with the region. They still have a commitment to its non-alignment, to not entering uh, alliances with other powers, but they focus much more on a pragmatic foreign policy that increases Iran's trade, its access to markets across Asia in particular, and that sought at least decent relations with the U.S. in order to remove a lot of the uh, the crippling effects of Iran's of the isolation that the Khomeini tradition has brought on Iran through its antagonism with the United States. So there's been this struggle since the 1990s between Iran's president and the supreme leader uh, over two somewhat different visions of foreign policy. And has this, Carl, uh, been a reason why uh, at times Iranian foreign policy seems to go in two directions at once, uh, both negotiating and continuing to support terrorism? That's right. That's a key part of it. A key part of it is in the constitutional structure of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the way that it, it gives, basically, think about the uh, the American Supreme Court given half of the prerogatives of the American president, right. and it, a sort of weakened president with the other half of those prerogatives, and you'd get a, a even more convoluted foreign policy than the U.S. has today. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, so the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps has a foreign policy that is completely independent, completely free from the foreign policy uh, that's pursued by Iran's presidents. I see. And, and how has uh, the, this bifurcated Iranian approach to the world uh, changed over time in its relationship with the United States? Obviously, before Khamenei, before 79, Iran is a close ally of the U.S. Uh, for reasons you described so well. Post-79, uh, there's the beginnings of major conflict between the U.S. and Iran. H- how has that story of U.S.-American, uh, U.S.-Iranian rivalry, how has that uh, varied or evolved in the last uh, four decades? Right. In some ways, the past four decades almost seem like a story of the same the same dynamic of escalation and de-escalation repeating itself uh, with only minor variations. The start, of course, in 1979 with the Iran hostage crisis, that was a, 
uh, certainly from the American public standpoint, that was a shocking event, which started America's relations with the Islamic Republic on a very bad note. What was interesting, if you go back and actually uh, look into the thinking of the Carter or the Reagan administrations, is the extent to which, at least until 1987, both of those administrations hoped that they could quickly get over the political effects of the Iran hostage crisis. And ultimately, Carter and Reagan both believed that Khomeini wasn't really going to be around long, that he was an aberration. They couldn't conceive of this hmm. strange, difficult-to-understand Iranian cleric leading a modern government. And they were convinced that there would soon be a more pragmatic strain in Iranian foreign policy that would take over. And so they actually kept trying to find uh, means to at least develop cordial relations, at least until around 1987. The failure of, of the Iran-Contra effort did a lot to push the Reagan administration to a antagonistic uh, relationship with Iran. And if just to, current, just call just to just to articulate for our listeners, the Iran Contra uh, experience was the effort by the United States to negotiate with Iran for the release of American hostages held in Lebanon and elsewhere by sending uh, secretly arms to Iran, uh, and the revenue from those arms sales to Iran were not only used to help release hostages but also to fund uh, Contra. Uh, forces in uh, Nicaragua. I just just wanted to articulate that not everyone knows the background of Iran-Contra. Uh, sorry about that, Carl. Right. Continue. And in addition, there were some within the National Security Council who believed that the arms sales to Iran in the Iran-Contra uh, scandal were also a potential opening to the Iranian government, right. and that they could start a diplomatic dialogue that might lead to a better relationship. Uh, so, the, the, I mean, the current situation with Iranian mines hitting ships in the Straits of Hormuz actually yes. has some real parallels to the situation in 1987, 1988, when Iran and the U.S. were engaged in the so-called tanker war yes. as Iran tried to cut Iraq's exports of oil during the Iran-Iraq war. The U.S. saw that as, as fundamental infringement on the rights of free navigation in the Persian Gulf and intervened after there was an incident in which an Iranian mine struck and nearly uh, sunk an American destroyer. In retaliation, the United States Navy, in the course of half a day, sunk about half of the Iranian Navy. It was a huge blow to Iran militarily, which played some role in convincing Ayatollah Khomeini to finally end the eight-year war with Iraq. I see. So, the current situation has these interesting historical resonances with things that happened in the 1980s, like the tanker war, like uh, the American operation to, to disable half the Iranian Navy in 1988. Right, right. And there continued to be uh, some attempts at rapprochement, as well as moves towards new sanctions in the 1990s. Iran's president, uh, Mohammad Khatami, who was in office from 1997 to 2005, made a very serious effort to improve relations with the U.S., Initially, the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan to drive up the Taliban appeared to offer a real opportunity for better U.S.-Iran relations. The U.S. and Iran collaborated in 2001 at a conference in Bonn, Germany, in putting in place a new Afghan government that was acceptable to both Iran and to the United States, and that appeared to be a real move forward. But several months later, uh, President George W. Bush included Iran in the axis, uh, axis of evil, and that in some ways started, ended this, this potential opening. 
Uh, and then in the mid two, in the, around 2003 to 2005, the U.S. war in Iraq and the development of Iranian nuclear program started another move toward, uh, towards confrontation, another uh, development of escalation in the U.S.-Iran relationship. Uh, it marked 10 years of very tense U.S.-Iran relations until 2015, when the Obama administration negotiated the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, essentially the Iran nuclear deal that has been in the news so much, which marked, it seemed, in 2015, a potentially more positive phase in U.S.-Iran relations. Carl, it, it seems in this uh, really uh, thoughtful and, and informative overview you've given us here uh, that we, we seem stuck in this pattern of uh, hostility followed by a slight warming of relations and a return then to hostility. And, and it seems as if, in a sense, there's similar factors on both sides, that you have in Iran, as you've described, a bifurcated regime. And in the United States, you have a, a constant uh, back and forth between uh, different parties and uh, different conceptions of whether Iran can be a partner or whether Iran is the foremost uh, threat in the region to the United States. Why are we in this ping-pong game? That's right. I think there are certainly structural factors that are preventing any real rapprochement. As we discussed in the Iranian side, that includes the legacy of communism and its opposition to, the Ameri- uh, to American power. On the U.S. side, there's the built-up, especially amongst those who would call themselves Iran hawks, a built-up resentment of, of Iranian actions over the past 40 years. Another real structural factor locking the U.S. and Iran in confrontation is the nature of the U.S. alliance system in the Middle East. Mm. The U.S.'s chief allies, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Israel, and also um, Egypt and Jordan, though they're somewhat less concerned than uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis. This is what your book is on. The, the book you're writing is, is about this, in fact. That's right. This is a system that developed in the 1970s to constrain Soviet power and starts to pivot in the 1980s to constraining Iranian power in the Middle East. So there's an entire U.S. alliance system that increasingly is defined by its opposition to Iranian power in the Middle East. And so even if the U.S. bilaterally attempts to improve relations with Iran, there's still that alliance system pulling the U.S. back towards confrontation. And I think this was really evident in the aftermath of the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was violently opposed by the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Israeli government. And the opposition of of those three governments, I think, does a lot to explain why individuals in the Trump administration were so willing to walk away from the deal and to move back towards confrontation because they had they had heard the opposition, the objections, the protest of these allies for several years before the administration took power. I see. I see. I think Zachary has a question. Zachary? Yeah, you talked about um, <clears throat> how... Uh, Iran and the United States have been in this sort of back and forth uh, since the 1980s. Uh, how it, you you explain that um, a lot of it is the sort of uh, bifurcation of the two for the two uh, countries' foreign policies, but is there also an issue of of holdouts of of foreign policy people from the 1980s who are still locked themselves on 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 the opposite country. Is that a serious problem in our foreign policy? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Zachary. That's, I think, a big issue for both Iranian and for American foreign policy. Uh, The individuals who 
are leading Iranian foreign policy were those who were in the first generation of revolutionary leaders shaped by the experience of the 1980s, including the leaders of the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards Corps, and it's similarly the United States. Um, neo the neoconservative movement in the United States really rose in the 1980s, and a lot of uh, neoconservatives paid very close attention to what Iran was doing in the 1980s, and they remember uh, particularly clearly incidents like the 1983 um, embassy and barracks bombing in Beirut, which was linked to the Iranians. They remember um, the experience of the tanker wars. And so there's an extent to which on both sides, um, there are a lot of policymakers who are still uh, locked in the mindset of the 1980s. And that continues, those memories and that perception of conflict continues to influence foreign policy on both sides. And, and Carl, do you see that changing? Is there evidence of generational change? There's a lot of uh, scholarship, of course, on the demographic changes within Iran itself. Uh, it's a very young male population. And of course, uh, the United States is moving into a moment now, uh, we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast, where there'll be more millennials than baby boomers uh, within actually a few months in the United States. Uh, so do you see that um, in res really responding to and moving us out of this moment that you and Zachary have been discussing where we have these holdouts from an, an older period or are we stuck where we are for the fore foreseeable future? Perhaps it offers change. I'm perhaps somewhat more pessimistic about theories of generational change, in large part because institutions often advance and change people from a younger generation as they move through them. Right. In the case of Iran, there's uh, the younger generation of people who will, assuming the current power structure stays in place, who will take over are those who have gone through the system, who've gone through the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps and who step up to take the place of of those older than uh, than them. There's a real question around what happens when the current supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, leaves, uh, whether he'll be replaced by someone with a different view, but I'm ultimately not entirely confident that his successor will be any different. On the side of uh, America's Middle Eastern allies, we've actually seen in the case of Saudi Arabia uh, that the new millennial generation is even more bellicose right. than right. their forebearers. Um, certainly, Mohammed, uh, the, the Mohammed bin uh, uh, Salman is, in some ways, is an aberration from a very cautious tradition of Saudi foreign policy. His the generation of Saudis that have led the state since King Faisal on has actually generally been pretty cautious um, and. Mohammed bin Salman shows none of that caution. He shows a recklessness. Uh, and you might even say the same for some of his partners on the American side. Uh, you know, um, Mr. Kushner, our, our Middle East envoys of the same generation, and seems um, just to share some of, of his Saudi interlocutors' um, taste for big, grand, confrontational ideas yes, yes. when it comes to the, uh, the Iran Saudi relationship. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that is going to be the solution to uh, the current crisis in U.S.-Iran relations. Yeah, and it's a, it's a very good point about how institutions socialize uh, new generations to, in a sense, replay many of the same issues. Zachary? Why is um, the United States uh, focused so much and, and really drilled in on, on Iran for its sponsoring of terrorism in the Middle East and 
uh, abroad, when at the same time the United States has allied itself with Saudi Arabia, who has um, supported such terrorist acts as even like 9-11 in the United States? Right. That's another great question, Zachary. Uh, certainly, the Saudis have generally have links to Sunni terrorist groups, uh, which are generally very hostile to Iran. So Al-Qaeda, for example, is a group that's hostile to Iran. ISIS it was a group that the Iranian government saw as a tremendous threat. Right. Uh, I mean, part of, part of this, of course, is that nations fixate more on the label terrorists uh, to describe uh, groups that they're you know, politically opposed to. But part of it is also the influence, once again, of, of the U.S. alliance system in the Middle East, the influence of our allies in shaping our perceptions of what are terrorist threats. Um, our, much of our alarm about terrorism by Houthi uh, militias in Yemen is a direct result of Saudi paranoia about the situation in Yemen. Um, the same goes, I mean, some of the, the groups that are being described as subversive actors in Iraq are, in fact, elements of the Iraqi military that the United States itself helped create right. uh, in right. the early 2000s. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it's in large part because of our allies, Saudi Arabia, um, the Emirates, and Israel, in the case of Hezbollah, have played an important role in focusing our attention on these Saudi-backed groups. Right, and there, there's the assumption, it seems, and this is in your own research, Carl, that uh, even if Saudi elements have supported um, certain terrorist groups, there's a belief that the Saudi leadership is on the side of the United States, where there's the opposite view uh, of Iran. So we, we accept more uh, Saudi bifurcation of policymaking than we will in the case of Iran, it seems to me, right? That's right, and the Saudis are very effective at putting forth their view. Uh, for over 50 years, Saudi foreign policy has been fixated above all on keeping the United States as a dependable protector of the kingdom. And so they're able to go to great lengths. They understand the political system very well uh, and are very good at convincing the United States that ultimately they are on our side and they are serving our interests in the Middle East and across the globe. Right. Right. And, and just to come back to something Zachary said in his excellent question, we should be clear that uh, for 9-11, there were uh, Saudi citizens who were involved, but, but it, it does not appear the Saudi government was responsible for that. And that's also what makes this complicated. Right. The Saudi fingerprints on a lot of things, but it's harder to attribute Saudi responsibility than it sometimes is to Iran when we know that, as you said, for reasons related to uh, Iranian foreign policy going back to the 1970s, there's been support for groups, groups like Hezbollah uh, and, and others. Um, Carl, how do we move forward out of this moment? Our, our podcast is about, as you've done so well in your discussion, elucidating how history explains the moment we're in, but we also seek uh, historical knowledge to help move out of the moments uh, of difficulty that we're in. So how do you see this vast historical experience that you've studied and elucidated? How does it help us to think about pathways forward for U.S.-Iranian relations? Right. Right. Well, sometimes statesmen ultimately have to wait for the right historical moment to make strides forward in remedying a antagonism as deep as that between the U.S. and Iran. And I'm not sure this is an auspicious moment. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there'll be a breakthrough <laughs> in the next couple of years. 
So in, in part, it might just be waiting to the right moment. There's an interesting question of whether 2014 to 15 was one of those moments and whether the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action could really have led to a fundamental change in U.S.-Iran relations. It obviously didn't, and maybe it could have. My view is that a real rapprochement between the U.S. and Iran ultimately requires not just a bilateral reconciliation, but also requires reconciling Iran with the U.S.'s regional alliance system. Hmm. The reality is, as much as some would like for the U.S. to walk away from Saudi Arabia or the Emiratis, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon, at least. And the U.S. certainly won't walk away from Israel. Uh, these are deeply institutional, institutionalized alliances. I think the question is whether the U.S. can actually, instead of allowing its allies to sort of hide behind the aegis of American protection, push them to actually have more investment in, more of a stake in, uh, in some sort of a regional improvement relations with Iran. It's not unprecedented. In the 1990s, there was a genuine improvement in Iranian, Iranian-Saudi relations. So it's happened even under the Islamic Republic. Hmm. And, and I think because of the power of these allies over, over American foreign policy, there needs to be some attempt to get them invested in a regional settlement of the myriad outstanding points of conflict between the U.S. alliance system and, and Iran. And do you see the changes in the um, uses of hydrocarbons in the United States, the movement toward uh, what really is a, is a return, in fact, to American greater uh, independence from energy resources from the region? Uh, do you see that as contributing to this process? It could. It certainly decreases America's dependence on oil-producing states in the Middle East. Of course, in the 1950s and 60s, America was also energy independent, right. but still had a very strong stake in protecting uh, Saudi Arabia simply because oil is a global commodity. And even if the U.S. is oil independent, there's still a stake in, in the question of global stability and energy prices. Um, so I'm not sure that, that U.S. energy independence completely reorients the U.S.'s relations with Saudi Arabia and Emirates and other regional oil-producing countries, but it, it does offer the U.S., I think, a bit more policy flexibility. Right. Right. What What is your advice, Carl, for uh, young people, um, young citizens who are interested in these issues? Uh, first, how can they stay better informed? Because what you've done is is really describe a, a more complex world <laughs> than one uh, really can understand, even reading major newspapers. Um, and then second, what can one do to encourage uh, a movement toward a... a rethinking of the alliance system in the way that you're describing it. Right. Well, I would certainly make the case for reading history as uh, <laughs> a first, a first step for people of, of my generation. Good answer. I mean, these, these are extremely complex questions which have extremely convoluted histories, which uh, even, even a 30-minute podcast is hard-pressed to fully make sense of. And so I think just understanding a lot of these complexities is, is a place to begin. Understanding the broad history of the region, not just the last 50 years yes. uh, Middle Eastern history, but understanding the last several centuries, it changes our perspective from seeing the Middle East as the region, as many people do, that's inherently violent. If you look at the last three, 400 years, actually, the Middle East is, is a region that's been 
has had a uh, more continuity of peace than Western Europe has been. Yes, good point. And and so I think that broader perspective is also important to understand the diversity of the Middle East, that it is an extremely diverse, complicated society is a good place to start. Uh, and I think, I mean, that just, that basic understanding is a, is a fundamental starting point, mm-hmm. uh, as well as they're traveling to the region. When it comes down to it, um, I've certainly found that Middle East is not half as dangerous as Americans often think it is. Right. And then that travel allows you to engage with people in the region, uh, share perspectives, both and helps them, un- helps them understand American perspectives as well, and perhaps there's something to um, diffuse Middle Eastern beliefs and all sorts of conspiracies about the nature of American power and intentions in the region. So I think I think travel to the Middle East is another uh, great thing that people of our generation can do. And and it sounds like what you're saying, and this is this has really been a theme throughout all of your comments, is that we have to move beyond. Um, many of the simplified categories and stereotypes, many uh, surrounding views of Islam, uh, views of societies like Iran, um, and, and try to push ourselves to, at the very least, understand why they do what they do uh, before we think about how we should react and comment on it, uh, really to empathize with these incredibly uh, sophisticated societies. That's right, right. And the way they see our society is often very different than the way we see it. Uh, that's absolutely critical. Absolutely. Zachary, do you see um, your generation of uh, young up-and-comers uh, capable of, of seeing and understanding the region in a more sophisticated way? Or are we, as Carl said earlier, recreating old views in our institutions? I think there is a, uh, there is a chance that our generation can be change makers. I think simply because we're a much more connected generation and not connected among leaders, but connected among ordinary people. And I think once the United people in America are able to start connecting on a very personal level with people in countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia, I think we'll really understand their societies uh, better. But at the same time, I really do think that uh, because of the lack of education on many of these issues, um, many young Americans like myself feel... um, and play to those stereotypes, and um, and think of and think of the United States as a benevolent actor solely in the in the in the Middle East, and ignore the complications of these societies, and 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 don't see the history of how the United States has um, has interfered in the region, but at the same time interacted with other countries. Right. Right, right. So in a sense, our agenda should involve uh, finding a way to better educate ourselves and make this a part of our daily uh, understanding and learning with regard to the wider world, that if we're going to be global, we need to be better informed. Well, to make American foreign policy something that's taught in history class, even when we're not at war, right? when it's not about either skipping from war to war when it's actually about what has American foreign policy been. Right. Well, and this is where uh, your work, Carl, is is so important, uh, really opening our understanding to this region in a way that, that few have before and, and providing uh, access through your writing. Uh, Carl Forsberg, we've been very fortunate to have you on today. Thank you for joining us. 
thank you so much, Jeremy, for having me. This has been a pleasure. Uh, ours as well. And Zachary, thank you as always for your poem and your comments. Uh, I think today we've learned the importance of digging deeper uh, beyond the headlines and really looking for historical roots that can also be uh, roots of uh, forward movement in uh, combative and contested relations between major societies like the U.S. and Iran. And there is an optimistic future based upon uh, a more sophisticated understanding of the democratic and non-democratic elements of, of these societies. Thank you for joining us today on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.